Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the uh, elders in training here. It's my privilege to open God's Word with you. We are in Genesis chapter 3 this morning as we talk about church principles, specifically the church principle of grace. Church principles are like the foundation of a house. Nobody really pays attention to the foundation until the uh, house is starting to fall apart. You just kind of go about life. But a good homeowner, good owner, knows the condition of their house and makes sure it is secure. Or else. Now, that's a metaphor for a reason. We, we have a church building. You're in it. And we take good care of it. And a lot of you guys work really hard to help make that happen. But the principles that we hold to as a church body, those are the real foundation that we stand on. Because just a year ago, we didn't have this place. And who knows how long we'll have it. Buildings crumble and fall, but our principles come right from the Bible, and that means they have power. Our three church principles are on the front of your bulletin every week. They are grace, fellowship, and church. Over the next three weeks, we're going to cover all of them for the sake of visitors, for the sake of experienced church members, and for the sake of everybody in between. If this is your first week, you picked a good one. And with those three principles defined and applied, we have a sure foundation. This week we're talking about grace. So, what is grace? Bear with me if you've heard this one before. Grace is defined as unearned favor. If, if you owe me and you can't pay, then I extend grace. You get mercy and I take the hit. Unearned favor. It's one-sided. And as any uh, two-year-old will tell you, we don't naturally come with this skill. But God does. Grace is part of God's very character. And as we read the Bible more and more, we can see that. And since God reveals himself to us most clearly through the Bible, grace is a thread that actually runs through the whole thing. If you're new here, you might think that grace only applies to the New Testament. And the Old Testament God is mean. I assure you that's not the case. In fact, we're going to prove it today. I can preach on pretty much any passage in the Bible and connect it to grace. But I decided to start at the beginning. So today we're going to be in Genesis 3, looking at the beginning of that thread of grace. We're going to see mankind's need for it. That's point one. And then we're going to see how grace flows from God in three ways. In a future promise, point two. In present suffering, that's point three. And in present relief, that's point four. And from that church, we will learn not only how God deals with us, but then how we should deal with people in grace. So point one, there is a grace-sized chasm between people and God. I'm going to read what for some of you is a very familiar passage. Verses 1 through 13 of Genesis chapter 3. This is at the creation of man and what we would call the fall. So Adam and Eve have been created. God's made everything. And here comes chapter 3. 
Now the serpent, that is the devil, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, This woman who you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's pray as we hear God's word. God, would you help us to be focused away from the distractions that we came in here with? Lord, would you help us to be focused in, maybe even away from the reality that we've heard this scripture before and we know how it works. Lord, would you help us to know that your word divides and cuts to the heart. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Amen. So there's a lot of detail in what I just read. And I'm actually not going to focus on the detail. Because there's a big picture I want to get at, and here's the big picture. The relationship has been severed between God and the people that he created. There was a relationship, and it has been severed. I want you to help, I want to help you understand why I have to say it exactly that way. If you and I are friends, and some of you are, and I, and I fail you in some way, perhaps a little rift forms. But, maybe within minutes we've got it patched up. I'm sorry about that. Would you forgive me? Sure. Hug. Whatever. High five, depending on the person. Okay, now increase the relationship. Say I fail my wife in some way. Say I break a promise. Bigger rift forms, perhaps. Cuts deeper. But even that can be mended. Now, what, why does this happen between people? Why do we forgive people? Often we forgive people because it's like, hey, we're human, right? Hopefully... We expect people to fall short of perfection. But we're not surprised when people fall short. But let's apply that to our relationship with God. It's different 
Because God is not like us. Since God is, is perfect, which we can't even really begin to wrap our minds around. You know, we call it like chocolate cake perfect. Since God is perfect, when we fail Him, there's not just some little rift that forms and maybe we move a few feet away from God. There's a chasm. And we can't cross that chasm. We can't just, oops. This is what happens when a finite person commits a sin against an infinite God. It's a big deal. That's why Adam and Eve hide from God in verse 8. Because they know what they've done. They've committed treason. In verse 5, the lie was said, You, Adam and Eve, you'll be like God. And they desired that. How do you fix broken desires? You see the chasm? There's a simple point that's implicit in the text. There's a chasm between God and his people. And because this chasm is so great, only God can cross the chasm. Only God could fix what's happened here. In other words, as you look at your fellow church members, or your sweet children, or your other children, <laughs> or your spouse, or you drive home and you see your neighbors, or anybody you meet on this planet, you need to have one thought in the front of your mind at all times. Their biggest need is not money. Their biggest need is not food. Their biggest need is not even your friendship. They need God's grace. That is the biggest problem that needs to be solved. Now, I will say, say this. Those other needs I mentioned, money and food and so on, we can and we should help people with those needs and many others. That's actually a form of grace. But we're not there yet. For now, there's a problem at hand and it's impossible to solve except by God. Because we're about to find out what is impossible by the hands of men is not only possible by the hands of God, it's actually going to be inevitable. God has set the solution in motion before any of us were even born. And the solution has three parts. There's a future promise, there's present suffering, and there's present relief, and it's all offered by God immediately. And that's going to inform how we treat people. Let's keep reading with point two. Grace is a future promised by God. And I'll read 14 and 15 and see God's response to this chasm that's formed. The Lord God said to the servant, uh, the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So I want you to see how there's future grace here. God begins by cursing Satan. So man's provided the offense, man's broken the rule, but God begins by cursing Satan. In other words, he's the one that gets the fatal punishment. Life will be hard for him, and he will eventually be crushed. 
Here's how his life is going to be hard. Zoom in on verse 15. Satan, I will divide you and the woman. In other words, Satan, you think Eve is into you, but her offspring is going to give birth to the man who's going to crush your head. They'll take the hit. His heel will be bruised and people will be spared. You will not have the victory. And this offering, in case you're new here, is referring to Jesus Christ. So in other words, here's the future grace that we see. The first thing God does is say that victory is inevitable. He doesn't start by punishing Adam and Eve. He actually starts by promising them a happy ending. What about Satan's promises? Where have they led Adam and Eve so far? They have only been deceived. The future Satan promises looked really good at the time, but then led to death. It's like bait on a fishing line. You've ever done that? So imagine you're the fish. So you're swimming along. And you see this shiny treat. You think that looks really good move in, and you take a bite, and it's a hook. And some people die for that thrill. Or some of them actually, you know, you you get off the hook, and man, you see that other shiny treat, and you're like, maybe it's not going to be a hook this time. And you move in. And again, and again, and again, and again. And some of you are here today. Friends, the enemy does not have grace for us in our future. He doesn't even have a future. There's an application here. And here it is, church. Do not long for the promises of the world, but long for the promises of God. Because they're full of grace. We need to fix our desires on the victory promised in Jesus and the future promise of heaven and not some short-term victory here on earth. Here's here's one example of of a short-term victory. Again, I, I I love this building. Don't get me wrong. I love it. I don't think any of us really appreciated migrating around State College every week, setting up chairs and taking them down. And wondering, when are we going to lose this place? Are we, going to, are we going to be able to come in next week? Not knowing that. But having a building does not mean that we've made it. We can totally lose this building. Or some law gets passed. And we get run out of here. Somebody takes a bulldozer to the thing. That can happen. If our hope is in this, we're done already. So when it happens, we'll be crushed, just like the building. But what if our hope is in heaven? You can't touch that home. The enemy can't touch that home. This home, heaven, is sealed up. So do what you want to this building or this body because the one I'm looking forward to 
cannot be touched. That is the difference between a church body that expands God's kingdom and a church that splits over the color of the carpet. That's the difference. It depends whose promise we're believing. Some of the churches that are in the most danger are the ones that are just doing so well. So let's place our hope, church, in the sure promises, in the sure grace of God. That will set us well up well for the difficulty, perhaps, of the next section. Point three, it's the second means of grace. Grace is present suffering from God. That's not a typo. Grace is present suffering from God. I'll continue with verses 16 through 19. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The short version of that is every ounce of pain or frustration or death here on earth is because of sin. There's an explanation for it. I have a relative who used to really like those kind of Hallmark movies, those kind of Christian-y, and everybody was like a cowboy for some reason. And there's this, like, there's this point where something really bad happens. And I'm like, my, mo- my, uh, my mom's telling me about this. And, and it's like, hey, you know, sometimes bad stuff just happens. That's the point made. My mom's like, yeah, right? And I'm like, I'm thinking, like, I've only been a Christian for like two years at this point. I'm like, no, no. There's a reason behind all this stuff. See, that sounds good because nobody wants to say, like, yeah, God's the reason that, like, we have, like, earthquakes and people die and there's suffering. But God's actually behind all that stuff. It's for good purposes. And people don't want to hear that, but he is. And it's actually for graceful purposes. And I'll, I'll show you. And I'll start with the first punishment for women. Guys, I'll get to you. Don't worry. Multiplied pain in childbirth. And I hardly feel like I need to explain that one. But here's the thing. I don't just say this because I'm a guy. But I think this punishment by God is full of grace. In fact, I think all the punishments are full of grace. And here's a few reasons. I'm just going to walk through a few of them with you. Number one. So back to childbirth. It's hard. We got that. But women still get the awesome job of being able to make children. We still get the job. God could have wiped out Adam and Eve immediately, but he allows his people, though in pain, to multiply. And here we are. We have multiplied. 
So there's grace because God even allows us to live. That's grace. You get up, grace. Here's the second reason. Let's consider childbirth again, but consider the pain and the complications. Or the loss of a child. I don't want to downplay that. What God intends for this pain to do, moms and dads too, and whether your kid's healthy or not, it's hard. But the purpose of all that is not to drive you away from God or to make you think, where is God? It's to remind you of your need for God. It's designed to pull you in towards the community of the church as we suffer together. That's grace. God shows us how bad sin is. That's great. That's like if I if I ignore the opportunity to show my kid that breaking the rules is bad, they think I've helped them, but I have not. I've just reinforced the problem. And I do want to I do want to say that that not that a child who dies or suffers is uh, or or suffers unusually is a direct result of sin because we love to just start like explaining away things. Like we can say God's generally responsible for suffering, but we're in a bad place if we start connecting people's particular suffering to some particular sin we think of in their life. We can say the fall is generally true. Amen. People generally have a hard time. Amen. But if such and such an earthquake happens because people have sinned, that's a problem. We want to be very, very careful to say stuff like that. Because when we do that, we're starting to say that we know this hidden will of God that plays out in front of us. So please don't misunderstand me when I say that there's a reason for this suffering. But sin in general affects our bodies, and so they can break. They break in many creative ways. Here's a third reason for grace. It's found in the second punishment to women. Verse 16, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, women will want to take the leadership role God gave to the husband, and they shouldn't do that. Now, that's like three other sermons. Please don't run out the door. It's like three other sermons. But instead, here's the grace illustrated with something I've seen in my own marriage. When a wife allows her husband to lead, especially, especially, especially when she could do a better job, she helps him to, in faith, do the job that God gave him. To not be passive like Adam was here. And that's beautiful. Instead, he gets to work. I've seen men who quite frankly have no business leading. Sometimes I look in the mirror and see that. I've seen them become godly men and godly husbands. And right beside them, not behind them, are godly women who have let them practice. Even when it has been kind of painful to watch. I've seen them grow. And the grace continues in God's punishment for men, verse 17 through 19, paraphrased is this. You're going to painfully harvest. You're going to get thorns and thistles. You'll sweat and you'll work hard all of your life. And then you'll die and you'll get buried in the nasty weed infested ground that you created. In short, 
work is probably going to stink. Amen. Amen. But, man, you get to keep your job. So when you care for your wife or your roommates, even with something as small as getting off the couch and mowing that overgrown lawn, I believe that the grass clippings that fly into the air are a sweet fragrance to the Lord. See you working. It's hard, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to care for the world that God gave me. In short, earthly suffering has a real purpose. And the purpose is the glory of God. There's grace in suffering. There's grace in the punishment. And here's how that applies. Church, help people to see that God has a purpose in suffering. People are depressed out there. Maybe some in here too. They're they're just kind of clogging themselves full of anything they can get their hands on to numb the pain. And it's not working. And so the best thing you can do is not to cover up your pain. Jeff, I want to thank you for what you shared. It's a great example of it. I want to encourage you guys in your small group time not to cover up your pain. And you think about it. How many times do you fall victim to the temptation that your kids need to be flawless at all times or else people will think you're a non-believer? How many times do you fall victim to the temptation that when somebody asks you how you're doing, that in Christ you always have to say, fine. If you really want to help people, walk into the pain with them. Walk into your pain and walk into their pain and don't be afraid to sit in that for a while. Or if it seems unexplainable, just cry out to God. Even if you're not sure exactly why God's doing the thing He's doing, cry out to God. Don't pull away. Or a sin entangles you again and the bait on the hook seems so good again. Cry out and fight sin. Dig deeper into your Bible. This is one chapter. You see all the grace? There's so much more. And in doing that, church, when we're, we then are prepared to offer not just future hope to people, but present relief that really matters. Last point, grace is present relief provided by God. I'll read the last five verses, verses 20 through 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat forever and eat and then live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's some detail in here I'm not going to focus on. But I will say this. So even as God sends out Adam and Eve, he does it full of grace. He sends them out to prevent them from living under the curse forever. They were going to, they were just going to continue to sin. 
And then what I want to focus in on is God gives them clothing. He gives them clothing. As I'd like to call it, present relief. But think about, where, where did he get that clothing? He was done creating. End of seven days. Remember when God said, you will die if you eat? And then they ate, but God didn't kill them? God kills you, but he doesn't kill them. He kills animals that didn't deserve it in order to provide clothing, which would be protection for his children for their journey. This is grace. One takes the hit that the other might live. In this case, animals. And at its core, what's happening that is that God is meeting a physical need of his people to point them to a deeper spiritual need. This happens all over the place in the New Testament. Jesus takes care of people's physical needs to point them to a deeper spiritual need. And even more, he's showing his people that for somebody to live, somebody else has to die. So in providing present relief, it hurts one person that the other might live. This is another shadow of Jesus who would crush the head of Satan. These animal skins and and even the exile of Adam and Eve is a picture of Jesus' unjust death, which covered our shame and brought us back into community with God. Church, think about it. We meet together because Jesus was cast out. That's the relief that was offered. We get present relief because Jesus didn't have any. There's so many applications for us here. But here's one, church. And some of you that are a little bit more outgoing, you're going to love this one. Meet the physical needs of people to point them to the spiritual need they have for Christ. At the very least... This is hard work. You know, you, you put together some event. Just did that. And maybe it doesn't rain. And maybe we reach some people. At the most, here's what it looks like. It might look like long-suffering relationships. Unglamorous. Week in and week out, meeting with people. Where we spend years of our lives caring for people who are hardened by the world, ministering to people week in and week out. We spend much time and much money and much effort to give people relief, and we do it so that they will see the access they have to the source of eternal relief. In other words, we serve the bodily needs of people to point them to a God who is far better than us. He offers them a future promise of grace, right? He offers them that. And he offers them grace in the midst of suffering, even in the punishment. And he offers them grace in present relief. And so we just mirror that. In fact, we we often do it backwards. You know, we don't just get up to people and say, here's the promises of God, like strangers on the street. That usually doesn't win people. No, it said we start with the third aspect. We go in and we provide present relief and we connect that to God. And then we walk with them. That was the second point. 
uh, the second aspect of grace, walk with them, providing them hope in the midst of suffering, and then that points them to the future promise that they have. So we point them to the source of infinite grace. All we're doing here is, church, we're doing what God's doing here when we care for people. That's what grace is. In all these examples of grace that I've shared this morning, as I close, I want you to know that a good church doesn't just give people hope for the future and doesn't just try to find meaning in suffering. It's the first two points, first two aspects of grace. But it also cares for the bodily needs of people. That's your third point. In other words, you can't be a church that's just like, hey, we're going to preach, and the other church over there, they're going to help people. Like, they're going to take care of the community. No, no, no. We do all of them, or we do none of them. We do all of them. To give picture a, to give people a full picture of God's grace, we do all three. We don't just go out and do yard sales, and then invite people in for like dead theology. No, we don't do that either. Because God has lavished us with all three. So we lavish others with all three. Church, as we look inwards at our hearts, right, and we seek to reach the lost, we know the problem above all earthly problems is sin, an uncrossable chasm. But we know that Jesus has crossed that chasm. And so we know that we serve a God who offers the solution above all solutions to the problem above all problems. And it is by grace. I'm going to close by reading our church principle on grace. This is on our website if you'd like to read it later. Our relationship with God, Grace Fellowship Church, through its beginning, development, and completion is completely by grace, through faith alone. By grace, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. By grace, the Lord calls us to repent of the sin that still indwells us. By grace, he transforms us into his image over time until we stand perfected before him in heaven. We never grow out of our need for God's grace. It is the way we know God and become more like him. We seek to minister God's grace to the heart in all of our relationships. We extend his grace by patiently working to know each other at the heart level, by speaking the truth in love, and by constantly pointing other people to Christ. Our goal is that nobody, nobody misses the grace of God. Let's pray. Dear God, the first word in our church is grace. Lord, let that be first in our hearts. Out of grace, out of the great grace that you've had towards us, we have fellowship. And through that fellowship, we have a church. Lord, as you guide us through these principles, would you help us to not just uh, see them as some nice thing to have or some cute phrase, but rather this is the foundation on which we stand. And it is based on your word. We thank you so much for your great grace towards us. Amen.